Hi and welcome to another episode of Oh Brother, What Are We Watching? Two brothers discussing uh, whatever we find this week. And mm -hmm. this week we are, after last week's episode of talking about Doctor Who's Blink episode, we are now talking about The Thing, the 1982 sci-fi horror classic, which Chris has never watched. Never. Never, ever, ever. Until yesterday, I believe. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to jump into that. I don't think there's any news. We never really have news. Not really. No. Um, the news is that we managed to do this two weeks in a row. Yeah, really. Which is doing well. <laughs> Fantastically well. Summer 2018. <laughs> We're on track. Finally. <laughs> so let's let's get into it. So the thing, I think it was 1982, mm -hmm. year of my birth. Uh, great year for movies and a great year for this country. Yeah. Uh, John Carpenter directed, Kurt Russell starring. And for me, um, this was another one that there's a great swathe of films that, of course, none of us have ever seen. And this one was introduced to me by a good friend of ours, um, Kevin. And he said, you guys got to watch this. And this was after he'd shown me They Live, which was another one from John Carpenter. They Live stars <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper. Oh. <laughs> Rowdy of, Roddy Piper. Of then WWF. Now it's dead. Sadly, now passed. And never was Scottish. So I don't feel that bad about it. But, but but actually, they live was actually quite fun, but in a culty, cheap kind of way. But it came after this, and he said you should watch this. And he, we put it on, and it I I found it outstanding mm -hmm. from from minute one, and um, was really surprised, Chris, that you had never actually caught it. But you finally sat down yesterday. How did you watch it? Uh, so I watched it by myself. Um, yeah, well, you wouldn't watch it with a kid. Would no, you? I wouldn't watch it with a kid. Uh, so it was an early early afternoon affair. <laughs> right. Um, by myself on the sofa. <laughs> Tea, coffee. No. Digestives? No. Popcorn? No. I had some water and some hot wings. And some hot wings? <laughs> this should be a new segment. Yeah. Snack segment. <laughs> What's the snack count? What's what? the snack count? What was the snack for this film? <laughs> the snack for this film was some terrible hot wings, which I deeply regretted. Uh, Shop-bought or did you make them? It was shot-bought. If I'd made them, they wouldn't have been regrettable at all. But um, I saw hot wings and in my heart of hearts, I knew they wouldn't be good. Because it's from a local sort of corner shop pizza place. Oh, really? But I thought, I'll give it a go because, you know, it, it might be nice. Yeah. And it wasn't. It was not. <laughs> very dry. Very poor quality chicken. <laughs> Rate the wings out of ten now. Uh, two. Two? Two, which is incidentally how many wings I had before I threw the rest <laughs> in the bin. <laughs> so we're thinking one is food poisoning? Zero one, is death? One would be food poisoning. <laughs> zero would be death. Uh, uh, you know, ten would obviously be... You know, top-notch restaurant quality. Okay. <laughs> um, mine, my own, that I make, yep. I like a nine. A nine? And a strong grade for a chicken wing. It, you'll, you'll see yourself soon enough. But um, yeah, it seemed like a wings kind of movie. Um, but Unfortunately, it didn't last. Didn't last. Uh, so I, I watched it pretty much sans snack. <laughs> you licked your sad sauce off your fingers and cracked yep. on with Kurt Russell with his mighty beard and long hair. Mm -hmm. yeah. McCready. <laughs> So I better find out. What do you think? I thought it was excellent. It's outstanding, um, isn't it? It's outstanding, and actually, while it's sort of marinated with me, uh, you know, I think much like the wings which did much like the wings <laughs> that didn't marinate. If I'd watched it, I, I, if you'd asked me straight after I watched it, what did you think? I'd have been like, yeah, pretty good, pretty enjoyable flick. But the longer it's kind of stayed with me, like I actually, I actually really want to watch it again. Yeah. And I never want to watch a film again after I've watched it. You know, it's. It's like, once I've done it, I don't, want, I don't want to do it again. It's like Christmas. It's like, okay, that was fun. 
this time next year is fine by me. Like I, I'm in, But let's move on. I'm in no rush to do that again. But no, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it put me a lot in mind of Alien, actually, Ridley Scott's Alien, for a lot of different reasons that mm-hmm. I'll, kind of, I'll touch back on as we go through the film. Sure. But yeah, just, you know, off the top of my dome, you know, very atmospheric, great soundtrack, got lots to say about that. Oh, yeah. Surprisingly good visual effects. Yeah. That, again, I'll, I'll come back to this, but don't really feel particularly dated, which which was quite nice. Yeah. And I realised I, I had a quick nosy i don't i don't know if you do this but i can't watch a movie without having imdb open so that whenever i see someone i go right. i recognize you what are you from yeah and I, I try and beat myself to it i try and have a guess before i look yeah but also i thought what kurt russell films have i actually seen what sure. have I watched and i realized like every kurt russell film i've ever seen i absolutely love but i haven't seen that many right and i think i must watch more <laughs> well he is a terrific actor i think the only thing can you can you Bring to mind what I might have seen that would have Kurt Russell in it. Uh, used Cars. Used Cars, yeah. You definitely would have seen. I don't think you've seen Escape to New York. No, I haven't seen any of his Snake Plissken roles. You have saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Two which he yeah. was in as well. Um, you must have seen, I think you've seen actually a bit more than you think, because in the early 80s with Mum and Dad, we would all kind of gather around the telly um, around like Saturday night ITV and there'd be a film on that we probably shouldn't have watched. That almost certainly starred Kurt Russell. <laughs> Kurt Russell with Goldie Hawn. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. There was one where he kidnaps Goldie Hawn uh, or she's got amnesia or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I forget. There was a lot of films like that in the 80s but that, that was one of the ones that I recognised uh, from the list although I, I can't remember much about it. But yeah, so loved him as the lead. Uh, very good, very convincing. Yep. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so let's, let's launch into it. I'll let you sort of take the lead. Well, it's, it's well, one of the things I found fascinating, just in general speaking about it, is the poor critical reaction that this film got. No way. In 1982. And one of the reasons why is it was released at the same time as E.T. And apparently this was it. This was like, Zeitgeist was popular, you know, it was, was, um, was more, uh, positive about the future yeah. and, and, and whatever and here was E.T. this lovable little alien chap and then here was John Carpenter's The Thing um, which was like there's aliens burn them uh, exactly but also the, the film as you've already kind of picked up the tone is quite dark and nihilistic you know mm-hmm. there was no way anybody was going to survive this encounter with this alien so I found that utterly fascinating and looking just very quickly at some of the original reviews people did not like this film, these, these original reviews. And of course, this is another film, we've talked about this before with other uh, films in the series of podcasts, where they come, people come back to it and they're like, I was so wrong. Yeah, it's, you know, like it's a, a cult it? classic. It's probably why we shouldn't pay too much attention to reviewers. If you really want to go see a film, folks, go see the film. Uh, regardless of what your mate says, or regardless of what the guy in the Times or the Sun or Daily yeah. Star say, because You're certainly not the Daily Star. Right? Well, hopefully you're not reading the Daily Star. <laughs> I mean, I know it's twenty p, but you know, don't get tempted by that. No. You know, <laughs> it's just it's just tits and football, lads. <laughs> and not even tits anymore, I don't think. I think the Star does. Oh. I don't read these the papers. Star- I read the stalwart Star still bringing <laughs> tits. <laughs> it's not a Sunday sport. Let's just oh. put it like that. Jesus. <laughs> But yeah, the, the critical reaction was pretty poor before reappraisal. And it's just surprising. I mean, there, there, there's lots of films in the past that that's been through. And I'm always surprised that people look at it. I'm like, really? I mean, it's it's shot well. Uh-huh. It looks beautiful. It's got an Ennio Morricone score, which apparently some people really did not like at the time either. That shocks me. That really shocks me. Because exactly. the score, I think, is pretty much flawless. 
It's actually one of the few films that John Carpenter made where he didn't make the score himself. He's oh, actually yeah. a talented musician. Um, but Ennio Morricone made it very much in his style. Um, so many talented people, obviously, the practical effects you already mentioned, and we'll yeah. go into those as well. I was just always surprised that for so long that this was like seen as like a, a monster mash flick from John Carpenter of the early 1980s, and yet when yeah. you watch it, a really effective, I think top-notch 1980s sci-fi you would put up there with Alien and and actually, likewise, Blade Runner mm-hmm. did not fare well initially with reviewers, and now is seen as a, a classic. Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, it's it, it, it literally embodies Blade Runner. This is you know what people think of as like a cyberpunk sci-fi dystopia kind of film. Um, you know, Blade Runner is kind of the template for that. Um, I'm I'm surprised. I'm surprised it didn't have a very good critical reaction because yeah. it's, it's 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 a cracker. You touched on it briefly. You know, calling it a, a monster flick. I, I, I have a tiny bit of a history with the, the film mm-hmm. in so much as maybe two years ago I knew nothing about it and if you'd said to me Chris you've got to sit down you've got to watch the thing I'd have been like Steve really? Because it, it sounded to me like uh, a guy in a suit chasing people around that's what I had envisaged because the name is presumably designed to kind of call to mind those kind of schlocky you know, sure. low-budget, crappy monster films. Um, and, and so that's kind of what I had pictured. And then uh, a little while ago, I was reading some sort of, you know, sites where they like to list shit. Top this that you never knew, top that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, they, they, they kind of spoiled the ending for me a little bit because they talked about the ending of the film. And I'll, I'll bench that till we get there. But um, it was all these sort of theories about the ending. What does the ending mean? blah bloody blah, blah. And when I read that, I was like, oh, this sounds fascinating. This sounds really interesting. This sounds like something I want to sort of stick my oar into. Um, and so I had actually suggested to you at some point, you know, I, I think I said, looking at getting the thing, is it worth watching? Is it worth us talking about on a podcast? And you sort of said, mm, maybe. Uh, and then my breath <laughs> rolled around, uh, which we <laughs> talked about in the last episode, <laughs> which I can vaguely remember uh, was within the decade. And yeah, obviously you got it for my birthday. I did, so, yeah. So yeah. that we could... Blu-ray? So that we could discuss it. Of course. You're I so lucky to have me as a brother. I wouldn't. Like, I, would, I would have spat in your face if you'd given it to me on DVD. <laughs> and I'd be like, you better have the receipt so I can take it and trade it in for, you know, value off of the Blu-ray. My wife was just complaining. She was saying, uh, I thought we were getting rid of all the physical media. It seems to be getting bigger. I was saying, but honey, I'm buying it on Blu-ray. Yeah. And she's like, it's so it's, true. It's future-proof. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sure I said the same thing at the time with DVD and VHS. I can't help myself. If there's certain things, I'm like, it's going to fall off Netflix when I want to watch it, or Amazon Prime, then I won't come oh, back. You know You've got what? to own yeah. it. You've got to own it. It happens. Do not... I know a bunch of people that sold stuff specifically because they knew it was on Netflix. That is... Chumps. That is a mugs game. Absolutely. That is a mugs game, because it will drop off before you know it. Um, so anyway, The Thing. Great movie. Really, really loved it. Um, so so we've touched on the music, so let's, let's talk about the music a bit. You want to talk about the music first? Oh, let's talk about the music, because that's the first thing you get. Is that score by Ennio Morricone? And the first thing I thought was that it, this is from an age of filmmaking where you were just allowed to let the film breathe a little bit. Sure. You didn't have to force down our throats like, you know, got to have some exposition, got to have a, a title scroll, got to have some character unnaturally telling us what's happening and what's going on. I actually counted it in five minutes into the film before there's any dialogue uttered. Yeah. So we start off with this music, it's like darkness and just this music, which is just a simple bum, 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 yep. bum, bum, bum. 
it's very tense. It, it gives us it, it gives us this two feelings it gave to me. One was of tension. Mm-hmm. The other one was kind of isolation. Yeah. You know, it's dialed back, very simple, kind of like the Jaws theme. You know, very very simple, one note kind of uh, kind of piece of music. Um, and then we're showing all these sort of this desolate sort of Antarctic sort of tundra. Yep. Um, and we don't know what's going on. We see a helicopter. It seems to be shooting at a dog. I've got no clue. Yep. And the filmmakers trust me that I'll stick around till I find out. Sure. Yeah, you know, so like I say, it, it, this is really the f- we don't hear any words until um, McCready, played by Kurt yeah, Russell, yeah. is sitting there playing chess against the computer and it tells him... My move, your move is this, sure. my move is that, and he's kind of left like, <laughs> I got you now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then ultimately loses to the computer, uh, which I think has a bit of symbolism here. Of course, but obviously the uh, the computer is the only female character in the entire film. Isn't oh, it? it's a sausage fest. It it's is a complete a, sausage fest. Dong central. But talk about any more corner score. I mean, it is um, it is it, it perfectly matches that um, the frozen tundra of the of the, yeah. this, this, the uh, South, South Pole, mm-hmm. Antarctica. And uh, it really helps you build that mood. As you say, it's got five minutes of, of no talking, a bit random what's happening on the screen, but there's that kind of impending sense of dread. Mm, yeah, it exactly. It comes from that kind of constant repetition, the pounding of the synth score. Yeah. And what's most important is the use of no score at times, the use yeah. of silence, you know? You don't constantly have to have something playing in the background, you know? Mm. There's there's that, and then, well, then we get nothing for a little while, and then bam! Stevie Wonder Superstition comes on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> we get a bit of digestic music and, you know, I've really bought into that because that's one of the best songs ever written. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it gives us, you know, then we start to get a bit of a flavour of what life is like for these people, you know, they sort of get on each other's nerves, they're, they're living in kind of close quarters, but they're generally quite friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as the film goes on, you know, we get what I think now would be considered quite standard fair horror sort of scoring lots of kind of discordant notes like yeah. uh this sort of you know a lot of rising and falling kind of um and it, it sort of kind of cuts out from time to time and when the music goes i'm kind of like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. what's about to happen and then you know so so um during the there's a bit where they're searching in one of the antarctic stations really early in the film and the music's really, really quiet, and then it kind of cuts, and then he finds this massive, massive block of ice from which something has thawed, and then the music just comes back twice as loud as it was before. Really, really noticeable. The the, the notes get a lot higher than they had been. Um, so just a lot, a lot done very, very effective. Yeah. Um, I thought, and then we don't really get the the sort of the music from the start kind of comes back, but only right towards the end of the film. Do we get that same kind of bum, 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 yeah, bum, bum. Yeah. and it's because we're kind of leaving things with you know <laughs> you know things have uh, you know are left in a very different way to how we start but there's still that feeling of isolation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but it's a lot heavier now you know yeah. the, the the music's a lot heavier there's a lot more of that sort of synth underneath it which sure. i think is kind of representing the kind of the paranoia well, um, exactly which which kind of is basically central to the whole plot the plot it's not a it's not a monster flick the no, thing it's not a is kind of inconsequential. It's the paranoia that it puts them through. Is it like The Walking Dead? Walking Dead is actually us. <laughs> <laughs> we are the Walking Dead. We are the thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, which is a, I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you haven't seen the film, 
But as a, as a brief overview, obviously, uh, the thing is a chameleonic life form. That's true. That kind of splits off, and if it infects you, you basically become it. Yeah. And it becomes you. Uh, so there is no one thing. Uh, so basically what happens is throughout the film, we very quickly get to a point where anyone could be hmm. the thing, the alien. And we don't know as the audience who is. In fact, I don't think we ever know until it happens who will be revealed next yeah. uh, to be the thing. So, of course, people start getting at each other's throats a little bit and maybe you're the thing. Maybe we should burn you alive. Maybe we should chuck this guy out. Uh, and, you know, tensions obviously flare. And that's, that's, the, that's the plot. That's where the horror comes from. Exactly. I think you've raised a good point, which is that the horror is not from the monster, mm -hmm. the scares, the visuals, you know, some sort of CGI, whatever. It's it's from your own imagination. So yeah. the, the tension, the music, the, the lack of seeing the monster at times, yeah. and the fact that it could be anyone in the room, is what kind of creates in your mind and begins to increase that fear. And of course, one of the most effective scenes for that, one of the most famous scenes, is the blood test scene. No, no, I was going to ask, I'm very glad you brought up the blood test, because, um, so, slight sidebar, you don't watch a lot of horror movies. Not generally speaking. No. And you probably wouldn't necessarily consider this a horror movie first and foremost, Correct. or a sci-fi yeah. movie. I'd say sci-fi. A sci-fi thriller, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, I think we've touched on this briefly before, but just, just again, why is it you don't generally watch horror movies? Is it because they're just not very good? Or do you not actually like the experience of being scared when you watch I actually don't get... I don't, oh, I don't want to say I don't get scared, but I can't, I can't remember what I've said about this before in the past, and it's maybe completely different, but certainly when it comes to what tends to be in the cinema nowadays when it comes to horror, is it's kind of cheap scares, jump CGI, scares, jump scares, yeah. um, you know, come see the big monster movie. And yeah. what I'm more interested in is films like The Thing, which has got this almost like unending sense of dread rather than uh, a monster, rather than something chasing you in the night, yeah. which is, you know, chasing some, you know, uh, Disney Channel tween or something yeah. into the distance. I don't really find that interesting, mm -hmm. um, but I'm quite up for, you know, probably as I get older, kind of re-examining things like slasher films and stuff, but I've just never really been into them. Like Halloween. Yeah. Or um, what's those other films that kind of like Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street. I I often consider those the big three. Right. Um. I, a little while. Ago, yeah. A little while ago, I went I went on a bit of a mission to try and watch all of those. Um. So I've seen I think all but one of the Friday the Thirteenth films. Have they been good? No. Ah. Oh, see. I would say. Probably not a single one of them is a good film. <laughs> Um, the first few are kind of okay for scary movies, but they are slasher flicks. They're not really about not scaring. Horror, they're they're slasher, not really right, okay. about tension. You know, it's we've got a whole camp full of young, sexy teenagers having lots yeah. of sex. Who will Jason kill next, and in what original way? And about the third or fourth film, they went from being sort of straight to being yeah. quite campy campy over the top you're going to see it because i want to see the crazy kill that jason's going to do where he you know like you've seen jason x you know, i have seen like jason x battering that guy to death in his, his sleeping bag things like that you know it it became crazy but also incredibly low budget and very hard to watch yeah <laughs> um, halloween's great the original halloween which i think is john carpenter as well uh, no Possibly. i think it's toby hooper isn't it 
Actually, I know it's... T- I'm pretty sure... No, hang on. No, you're right. Toby yeah. Hooper was Friday the 13th. Halloween is... Halloween's John, John Carpenter, Carpenter. And Wes Craven was Nightmare on Elm Street. Because I read something... That's right. Because John Carpenter was asked to come back for Halloween, the 20th anniversary, H2O. And um, he got underpaid on the first one. Yeah. And he wanted like a massive salary for this one as like a make-do. And they said no. And someone else did it. Yeah. That's right. You're right. John Carpenter did but, do it. And, and the thing is, I would say Halloween, the original Halloween for me, is one of the best horror movies I've ever well, seen. Well, there we go. We're discovering so, a trend you know, here. It's John Carpenter. Yeah. John Carpenter is an incredibly talented guy. Um, and, and like you say, he came up with the iconic Halloween theme as, uh, as well. Um, is that the... No, that's J- that's Jason. That's Friday the 13th. See, I, I'm getting them all mixed up. So what that actually is, is that's Jason, baby Jason, saying, kill them, mommy. It's... Oh, is it? Because in the original film, spoiler alert, it's Jason's mum that's the killer. Jason isn't even in the original film. Ah. He was a child who died, ah. and he only appears right at the end for the... What I must admit is one of the worst jump scares I've ever experienced. I, I very nearly followed through. It was very scary. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking speaking of um, jump scares, to bring this back to the thing, we talked about the blood scene. Yeah. So the blood testing scene is, is a scene where basically everybody's really turned on each other. No one knows who you can trust. Yeah. McCready was running things. Yeah. Then they all turned on him because they were convinced he was a thing. So he is now running things because he's holding a massive stick of dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> and he's basically like, any of you fuckers come for me, I'm going to blow us all up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're already very tense. He comes up with a system to, to test people's blood, yeah. whereby I'm going to put this hot thing in the blood, the blood will try and preserve itself if it's the blood of the thing. So um, he's, he's basically taking people's blood one at a time. You're safe. You're safe. You're safe. Look at me. I'm safe. And he's busy testing somebody who's very much a, a C-list character we barely see on the screen, almost a bit of a comedy, comic relief character. Yeah. Um... And as he's testing this blood, it's so inconsequential. He's talking about someone else who he's pretty certain is the thing. And he's like, I know that you had the keys and I'm saving your blood for last because I'm pretty sure I'm going to burn you. And as he's saying that, the blood he's testing reacts. And I, I did I did jump quite badly Isn't it? He, he hits it into the, the, the little kind of plastic tree and then all of a sudden this comes up right off that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, because everyone else, it spends ages, he sort of, he, he gently rubs it round the dish of blood and it yeah. makes this squeaking, horrible noise. Sound is used to really good effect in this film. Yeah. And that is one example. It's going like, squeak. Mm. and the blood's fine and you're constantly like <gasps> you're always holding your breath and yeah. every character who gets cleared you see them go <sighs> yeah. because they don't know what's going to happen yeah. you know um, and, and then yeah this one character it's just it, it, there's almost no tension about it because we're, we're dealing with something else we're not even thinking that he's going to be the thing mm. the second the, the needle touches it it jumps out it screams I jumped, I jumped about three foot in the air. It's about the only time in the film that I... Because it's not a film for cheap jump scares. No, no. But it was about the only time in the film that that, got, that sort of got me like that. Uh, but I'd been on, on edge the whole time. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, And it was kind of the culmination of all this, this, this kind of tension. Mm. Um, but that, that scene in particular was a real standout to me. Oh, it is a real standout, um, yeah. And particularly because it ends... Do you, know, do you know the specific quote that the captain says? The guy who they were convinced was the thing all along gets cleared. Go on. He says, um, if you're not too busy, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> well, that is, that's a great, that's a good jumping off point to talk about the, you said it about the characters, but the character actors. So <laughs> one of the reasons I think it's, it's so good is that 
aside from Kurt Russell, who you kind of know is going to have to survive to the end, right? Mm-hmm. Because he's Kurt Russell. Um, other films have used that to their to, to a different effects, like um, Samuel Jackson in Deep Blue Sea. He's one of the first to go. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but in this film, the rest of the cast are all very recognisable character actors, but you don't really know. If I said the names to you, I'll, I'll give you a few of them. Wilford Brimley, <laughs> Donald Moffat, and Keith David. Keith David is probably the most famous of those. He's carved so, himself in a nice voiceover video game uh, career now as well. He was also in Community. Yeah. Now, Keith, Keith David, I did not physically recognise. I recognised his voice. Yeah. And then I had to kind of look him up. Um, so I specifically know him. Uh, obviously, he was in Community. But the first thing I came to was he was the dad of... He was Cameron Diaz's dad. And there's something, <laughs> there's about, something Mary, about Mary, yeah. <laughs> who's just fucking with Ben Stiller. Just like, head back with our old boyfriend, Woogie. <laughs> How'd you get the beans, brother Frank? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, where he just steals the show for me. Uh, but he was he was great because he kind of he kind of plays against Kurt Russell. As mm. he, he's very antagonistic yeah. and kind of comes across at, at times as sort of like, why are we letting him run things? Yeah. For all we know, he's the thing. And, uh, you know, is, is, is very kind of in his face. Yeah. Um, so he's great. There was a character, I don't know if you mentioned the actor's name, but he, he plays the guy who turns out to be the thing in the blood scene. Oh, um, and uh, I recognised his face straight away. He was from uh, a film that you and me know, and I think maybe two other people in the world called right. The Couch Trip, which is a Dan Aykroyd <laughs> film. Yeah, Couch Trip. Yeah. Uh, where he plays a, a sort of a lunatic and Dr. Baird, who runs his... Uh... Charles Grodin. No, no, no. That's um, that's another character. Baird is the guy that he pretends to be. Oh, right. So that's Baird right. is played by that's right, that character. The reason why I remember that is because Charles Grodin lines. What's a beard? What's a beard? That's right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's a great film, actually. That's but, a terrific um, film. But yeah, so I, I recognised him from that. And again, a couple of the other guys, I was like, I know I've seen these guys in, in You've something. Seen them I've seen them somewhere. Films. It's like Peter. It's like when Peter McNichol turns up in something like Ghostbusters 2. Mm-hmm. I've seen that guy somewhere before. Yeah. They've always done things. So Donald Moffat is the guy who you said, get me out of this fucking chair. Yeah. And he's been in tons of films. And I think Wilfred Brimley may be the guy who's on it. He's the one who's conducting the actual autopsy. And the autopsy scene actually uses real animal um, parts. And he yeah. was the only one who wasn't freaked out by it because he'd been raised as basically a cowboy. Yeah. And had lived on, like, the prairie and had, you know, dealt with animals as a farmer. Yeah. And I thought what was really, really great about that scene is everybody probably legitimately, um, like, when they first see... We, we see a sort of a frozen version of the thing, mm. one of the things from the, the, the previous station. And everyone is looking at it and grimacing, and they all look like they're about to throw up. And there's a lot of kind of... <clears throat> there's not overplayed, there's no like huge retching, there's no running off to go be sick. But it is exactly how any of us would react if we actually watched a live autopsy as well, because yeah. it is disgusting. And yeah, then you've got this one guy who's just kind of like... Mm. Spleen, <laughs> yeah. check, heart, check. Um, and again, that specifically was the first time I thought this is like Alien. Yeah. Because um, Ridley Scott went to a butcher's and bought a whole bunch of guts and stuff. Sure. So that, um, you know, when I think it was for when you're looking in the, the egg or the face hugger, the, yeah. for the face hugger bit, he was like, well, uh, you know, I was like, I wanted something real that looked yeah, like Yeah, exactly. So I went and got some guts. 
Um, and much, you know, much the same here. We haven't got plasticky or like too fake looking props. We've got legitimate cow parts or legitimate, you and know, sheep parts just coming out of this thing, making it look very organic. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons, because I another good segue is practical effects. Yeah. So another reason why this film not only looks great because of the way it's been filmed, is that it uses practical effects. And the guy who's behind it, I can't remember his name, but... One of the famous people that actually worked on this film and didn't receive a credit was Stan Winston, who's very famous for practical effects in Hollywood. And I think he would be, he was the Terminator guy. Stan yep. Winston was the Terminator guy. Um, and that's why I think when, when practical effects are done well, it kind of lives through time. This is a film yeah. that was made in 1982. Think about all the films since then with bad CGI and, yeah. and poor effects. When you spend the money on great practical effects, you don't need to replace them. You need to look at like model work from yeah. um, science fiction movies like Star Wars. Yeah. Um, those great Star Wars model movements from the 1970s to the 1980s have never been replaced. They look yeah. amazing. The problem is the amount of work you have to do to get to that point in yeah. the detail. You have to make these big, huge models. Or in the case of the thing, you have to make these great animatronics and whatever. And when the, the dog is being uh, consumed by the yeah. thing becoming a thing, it is literally just whips yeah. are getting thrown by the, the, the main guy who came up behind the, all these practical effects. His name I didn't write down, which was yeah. a huge injustice to him. But there was so much practical effect work on this film, Chris, that um, that guy actually suffered um, from um, overwork yeah. and he had to take some time off. So they called in Stan Winston, who did some of the work, as well, and he didn't receive a credit. He didn't want to take it away from this guy's work, yeah. um, and he just receives a thank you in the credits. But it, it isn't it tantamount that, that this film just looks great and scares you a little bit yeah. from things like that blood test scene because of those practical effects. Yeah, it's the thing is a practical effect. If you thought it looks good in 1982, you'll think it looks good in 2018. Yeah, because it doesn't age. You know, you don't get to a point where oh, I've seen better, so now this looks crap. Yeah, that's the problem with CG. Jurassic Park is the only film in living memory that I can think of where the CG does not look dated. Right. Where it, I still watch it today and go, "Fuck, that's great." That looks like a real dinosaur. It looks great. But it also has practical effects, practical and effects. and it's because they were used together and they were layered. So, again, if you think of Alien and Aliens, mm. both films, you know, James Cameron and Ridley Scott, very into their practical effects, especially at the time, using a lot of very different, probably very difficult and time-consuming and expensive techniques to achieve what they wanted and to be really creative with it. Then you think about Aliens versus Predator and how completely forgettable those films are. They look because they're just laced with CG and it's it's just not tangible. It's mm. not there. You mm. see it and then it's it's gone. It's just like... it's. It's, it's really kind of nothing -y. um and especially in this day and age where everything's green screen and everything is cg yeah sometimes i watch a film like this and i'm like oh my god this was in a real place yeah that's a real wall yeah exactly and, and just seeing that yeah makes the film feel so much more real than than anything i've watched for the last five years and because it, it really happened and apparently just like tunisia if you go to the right place in british columbia you can find the remnants of some of the set for the outdoor scenes because the, uh, the scene they filmed was literally in the middle of nowhere. It's one of the highest places for snowfall in North America. Yeah. So they didn't go to the South Pole, but they went to this place in Canada. Um, and yeah, apparently these two guys went out there and um, 
went to the set and found pieces of the set and props and whatever. And took them home. Must be worth a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> possibly, possibly. But it does it, it does exactly that with, with a good practical effect. It really does ground you and it feels more real. You know it's sets, you know it's actors, but you can't help but get over the fact that it looks so real. And, and sometimes, you, I know you said they're using expensive techniques. I actually think they're quite cheap in some ways, but they're just time consuming. Yeah. They take they take knowledge, which sometimes comes from just trying things. Mm -hmm. A great example of that is actually the title sequence. So this um, word mark of the thing appears on screen, doesn't it? Yeah. All practical. It was a goldfish bowl uh -huh. or goldfish tank, which had um, smoke in it. Uh -huh. And then they had a bin bag, garbage bag, <laughs> on the bottom, which they set fire to. And then that's how it slowly but surely kind of dissolves away. <laughs> And then you've got this smoke and the light coming through it, and it looks yeah. like it's a real. It's just a practical effect. It didn't cost much at all. A goldfish bowl, bin bag, and some smoke, yeah. and a film camera in a black room. And again, you know, we were we were talking when we were talking about Goodfellas and how you know, uh, last last episode, you know, or a few episodes ago, sorry. Yeah. You know how everything looks great, everything's fantastic, everything's mm -hmm. just filmed mm -hmm. well, and you know again it, it comes back to that idea of everything just being radio with pictures and shorthands you know directors don't have to think how can i make this look good uh, what do i have to yeah. do they just think i will say to the cg guys can you just make it look like this can you just make it look like that yeah and, and again it's almost too easy it kind of takes some of the the graft out of it and you know sometimes through through difficulty and adversity is, is where real art is made. Exactly. And you just don't get that in a lot of films today because they've got these yeah. ridiculous budgets. Computers can do whatever they want them to, but it just has this slight tinge. There's always something in the back of your head saying, that's not real. It's not a real building. That's not a well, real place. Exactly. And yeah. I'll actually bring up another example. And it's not necessarily an egregious example, but it always comes to mind. So when you watch trailers of certain films and you watch them from the first teaser all the way through to the last trailer, I mean, I, I, I adore trailers. I can never yeah. miss the trailers when I go to the movies. You can sometimes see how the effects have changed through post. And one a good example was Star Trek Beyond where the alien invaders, the swarm, their helmets, whatever, in the first teaser, whatever, they look fine, but by the last film, they look different. The yeah. last teaser and the actual release film look different. That's because... Every single one has had CG work done to their, their helmets, their heads. Yeah. And you're like, it's almost so inconsequential. Why would you spend millions of dollars or maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars on that Yeah. when you could have focused your efforts elsewhere? Now, again, it doesn't make or break Star Trek Beyond, but it is an example of in Hollywood where you have directors now yeah. who have not grown up with practical effects or don't necessarily yeah, they wouldn't know where to them. begin that's the thing they would not know where to begin if they tried to make a film like terminator these days without well, just resorting to a whole bunch of cg well exactly but that's it we're going to get another terminator so and it's going to be garbage but it, it, <laughs> may be, it may not be who knows but regardless it'll be very interesting to see whether they use cg in the right way or whether they use practical effects or a mixture of them and that's why it is great watching a film like this or blade runner yeah. or alien from the 80s where the special effects have got to such a stage with model work and prosthetics and whatever yeah. that it looks still real. I mean, you can still see films where these things look crap. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But when they're done well, like by a Stan Winston or something, they look amazing. Yeah. And they really put you in that sense of place. And between that and the music and these great character actors who are all each other's throats, yeah. you feel like you're alone 
in the middle of nowhere in fucking Antarctica and there is no hope and the word for it is nihilistic. Yeah. You know deep down in your soul this film is going to end with everybody dead. And something else. Bit of a tangent. Bit of a sidebar. Go on. Do forgive me. That dog. <laughs> what a job that dog did. <laughs> just seeming slightly unnatural. <laughs> Apparently the dog never looked at the camera, never looked at the crew. I know, the dog is a pro. I was so blown away. The unfortunately, I I wish I had known even less about the film. I knew very little yeah. going in. I did, however, know that it was about a shape shifting chameleon life form. Yeah. So I knew pretty much right away that the dog was the thing. Yeah. But the, the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, it's more and more being made obvious that something's not quite right about the dog. Mm. Up until the point where it just bursts open, basically, and it becomes this bizarre creature. Mm. Um, there's just lots of scenes where it's like, they're talking? The dog is watching them. Yes. Like, he is listening to what they're saying in a way that just does not look natural for a dog. He's not sitting there licking his nuts, <laughs> sniffing around, He's looking for a treat. He's just humans. sitting. He's watching. There's a bit where they come, they're, they're coming back in the helicopter and he's just watching out the window and it just keeps cutting back to the dog, just watching them unblinking at the window. And I was like, this dog is creeping me out, but I'm also like totally impressed <laughs> by the dog actor who is yeah. doing this. And again, thank God they didn't just, oh, let's just CG the dog. <laughs> well, well, apparently, Which they would totally do these days. So apparently the dog in the first scene where the Norwegian pilot is trying to kill him yeah. is not the same dog, but it's a dog who's been literally painted and all i could think of when i read that was the simpsons when they said you can't have horses on screens you gotta have cows yeah they don't look like horses when you put them on screen. Look like screen how do you get cow we usually just tape some cats together <laughs> <laughs> but that is one of those things though isn't it that's like certain things don't look like they're supposed to on screen or yeah never so they had to paint the, a different dog with a yeah. chasing dog but the, the do there was one dog used for the other scenes and yeah, uh, yeah he's a pro. a pro absolute pro that dog um, and I've uh, I want to make one more reference to Alien and then I promise I won't mention it anymore no it's no um, problem but it's just probably another parallel mm -hmm. um, so the big the the sort of elevator pitch for Alien way way back when it was still in its early pre-production phase was truckers in space right they're not cadets they're not marines they're just truckers they don't know shit yeah from aliens likewise these guys you know they're in a base a couple of them are scientists a couple of them are just yeah. pilots or whatever else yeah. and very quickly the scientists get taken out of the mix so what we don't get a lot of is techno babble explanations for what the thing is how it works mm -hmm. we see this one tiny sort of uh you know like amiga bbc computer kind of thing of you know alien cell dog cell dog cell um, <laughs> yes. kind of explaining how it works but that's all we get and at one point Kurt Russell's asked for an explanation and he's like well I don't know it's, it's probably an alien it seems to take you know seems to take the form of other things that's really all I know yeah and that is the audience is all we know and it's all we need to know you know we never get told explicitly that it's an alien race we figure that out yeah you know you you never get told who they are what they're after for all we know, they were seeking peace but didn't know how to find it and Kurt Russell's there trying to commit genocide. Yeah. But we don't need to know and that's really, really great for me. Um, and again, it's similar to Alien. In the first film, the alien doesn't get named. We don't get told what race they are, what species they are, what planet they're from. 
we don't know anything about them there's this great mystery to it and part of it is because you're experiencing through the eyes of an everyday joe you know just a working class guy not some massively brainy scientist who's going to spit out an explanation that we the audience couldn't guess ourselves sure um you know so there are just a few scenes that are just kind of signposting where we're going yeah but there's no boring exposition dump where we have to hear about something because if you don't understand that you won't understand why the scene works yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the interesting things from the film is that I think they filmed a scene where they introduced McCready as a, a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually the director decided to cut it out because he's like, you don't need to know. You would guess. You would guess he's probably a vet. You know, he, exactly. he seems like he's probably done some time in the military. But that's all you need to know about him. Yeah. And, and again, that's what makes it great. They don't over-explain things. They let you, the audience, just kind of... Not guess, yeah. per se, but you know, just figure it out. And, and it's not a problem that is necessarily about cinema today, but it's just in general that you do get these films and you're like, you don't have to tell me everything. You don't have to shoot, you know, you don't yeah. have to. Like, apparently, so there's a film out there that came out recently called um, Gotti. Okay. It starred John Travolta as famous mafia He's boss, back. John Gotti. <laughs> that sounds like a really podcast. Parachutes. <laughs> guys, guys, I gotta tell you, I don't think he's ever been in New York in his life. Uh, but he still gets these roles. Anyway, so apparently um, the, there's a scene, and this poor guy, I can just imagine when he read the script, he's like, oh, fuck, I've got to say this out loud. And he's like, here, he's known throughout the five boroughs. And then he explains to the audience, he's like, Queen, Manhattan, the Bronx. And you're like, well, you know what the five boroughs of New York are? Even if you don't, who gives a fuck? Like, just yeah, move on. If you on. don't, you don't need to. And if you do, great. Like, it's just that's, that's bad writing and bad editing. I just, it's, you know, sometimes the simplest explanation is the best. Sometimes don't even explain anything to us and just let us go. Yeah. And, and, and move on with the film. And it's just, it's not just nowadays. It's, it's you know, there's, there's bad films from all ages. But it is something that when I watch now, especially when I'm in the movie theatre, I do cringe. I'm like, oh. Yeah. just be a bit more light and just get to the point and go on yeah just strip it back just a little, little bit I don't need to know this character's backstory I can figure it out or I can just make assumptions so you know like like you said there I wouldn't have necessarily assumed he is a Vietnam veteran I definitely assumed that he'd been in the military which is how he could fly sure. the helicopter why he naturally took charge why he said go get me the flamethrower you know and they go and get him the flamethrower and no one questions why he's the one wielding it you know um and yeah you know it, it doesn't require explanation my brain filled in the gaps and because it's so stripped back yeah there's there's a lot of you know area for for interpretation so with that that's a quite a good segue to get to the the, the point of the ending sure go for it so the ending brings us to kurt russell believes he has more or less killed the thing yep um and is now going off to die because the generator for the building was broken and then blown up. Uh, so he is out in, I think it's is it Antarctica? It is the South Pole. Yeah, so it's the South Pole. So he's, he's there by himself. There's no way he's going to be able to survive even no one way, night man. in the freezing, freezing cold. He goes off with his drink to just basically go and just wait for death and hope sure. that he has done enough t- for the thing not to, to spread. And then um, his his friend, I've forgotten the character's name already, which I'm really annoyed at, um, but who's who's played by... Keith David. Played by Keith David. So when Keith David's character, who mysteriously vanished when he was told to like stay here and guard this guy, somebody sees him running somewhere, and then we don't hear from him again, 
turns up right at the end of the movie. Um, and then we have this perfect moment that just perfectly encapsulates the whole film. Kurt Russell basically sits there and he's like, even if you are the thing, I'm exhausted and I'm too tired to try and do anything about it. I'm pretty much on death's door here. So let's just sit here and watch each other with one eye open until we both freeze to death. Um, and you, the audience, are left to assume either Kurt Russell was actually the thing and he's about to, you know, open up, or Keith David, did you say? Yeah. Or Keith David is the thing and is just going to wait his opportunity to, to sort of freeze and then become unfrozen and etc. Or actually neither of the thing... Neither of them are the thing, but in their dying moments, they're just going to keep watching each other. Yeah. With this, like, this nihilistic, this kind of, oh, we're doomed. We're just going to watch each other with, you know, we're going to die as we've just lived in the past yeah. however many hours, paranoid, unable to just relax and trust each other. Well, actually, it's even less than that, I would say, is not so much about, I think. No, no trust. But at this point, it's utter relaxation. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's You know what? I've got my whiskey. I got a gun or whatever. I may die. I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna have a good time without it. And yeah, you and could be the thing, but if you come near me, I'll kill you. <laughs> yeah, and, and Kurt Russell kind of laughs about it. You know, he's just like, <laughs> "What are you gonna do? We're both dead anyway. Let's hope that at least the human race is gonna survive." Yeah, right. But it's it's this very kind of bleak ending and, and it's quite sad ending mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know in, in many respects and again you know like you say it was a time of, of hopeful endings and you know hope for the future uh, and as I say he's just potentially committed genocide and is now going to die <laughs> yeah, yeah. potentially is going to be turned into a, a monster before he does uh, and, and we don't know and there's there's um, a level of audience kind of you know interpretation left there Apparently the uh, ambiguous ending was okayed by the studio only on the proviso that they added an extra alien scream when at the end with the, the, the fire and the flames and everything. Yeah. Just to kind of make it clear that if there was one thing or two things or whatever, but that one died. Yeah. Or at least you get the implication that it was. Apparently that was the only way they signed off on the ambiguous ending. Yeah. Um, um, so... What I wanted to know, what, what's your take on the ending? Do you have a theory or, or anything? I don't think it's like a big mystery like Blade Runner or anything like that. No. I, I just, I, I don't know why Keith David ran away. Um, mm -hmm. Well, he says that, so so we find out the scientist guy, they've been, we didn't even mention that, they've, they've got one of the scientist guys shack, like caught up in a shack somewhere because he was acting crazy. Yes. Um, he, he gets out and it's very clear that he was also infected the whole time as well. Yeah. Um, and so Keith David's character says, like, I saw him running around, I went after him. Yeah. And again, that's a perfectly plausible explanation. Just as easily, it could have been that he got taken over by the thing and is now here to, to sort of finish the job or even just to wait it out so that when he's, he, when he becomes unthawed again, just like the other things have, he can sort of continue doing what he's been doing. So, I mean, there is an ambiguity to it. There is a mystery to it. What will absolutely drive you nuts is the amount of theories that are out there where they say, like, definitive proof. We have figured out what the ending means. We have figured out who was the thing and who wasn't the thing, which is the sort of thing that I know you hate when something's been left ambiguous that people can't necessarily accept that it's supposed I to be. I love ambiguity in movies. I hate it when people just say they have to have an answer. You know, yeah. I actually and it's a very natural human thing to want an answer. 
I hate the fact that Ridley Scott's had to come out and tell people about. Well, yeah, fuck it. Deckard was a replicant. Deckard was a replicant. <laughs> it's like, but was he? And then they, yeah, it's like I'd still kind of like to live in the kind of the, the in between of maybe he was yeah. and maybe he was. And what I always liked, much like with Donnie Darko and a lot of other films, you know, where we've discussed an ending, is it the ending, etc. Um, I like the idea that the guy who made it. He's got an idea what it was about. He's got an idea what happened. You don't need to. You can guess. You can come up with your own theories. You can yeah. talk about it. You know, um, personally, I don't think either of them were the thing. No, I think they're just two I, guys that are never going to die. Two guys that are going to sit there in each other's company and die. And it's kind of sad that they're going to die not knowing if they're talking to their buddy or if they're talking to an alien. But it kind of doesn't matter because the damage of the thing has already been done. That they don't know who's who. They've been they don't ripped, know what's got, what. ripped apart by paranoia against yeah. each other, and now they're all going to die. Yeah, um, and you know, and I think that encapsulates the movie. And I, I, so of course, I've read a bunch of theories. And and what originally brought me to this was uh, articles discussing fan theories. So there's one very popular one that you can see Kurt Russell's breath. It's very obvious on the screen. Yeah, you can't see Keith David's breath very well. Right. Which implies, oh, that's the thing because the thing doesn't breathe. But I actually think that's bullshit because. But if, but if the cells become other animal cells, like the dog cells and everything, then, then it would they have would to need breathe. to breathe. And in right? fact, throughout the film, you can not only hear the thing breathing, but you can see its breath in other scenes. It might just be that Keith David didn't have very hot breath that day. And maybe, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> maybe it's the fact that he's maybe filming in a studio the other, you know, because maybe they're not even filming directly next to each other. I don't know. I just think that's an interesting coincidence. I don't think that's supposed to be a clue. Yeah. There are other people who are convinced that McCready's not carrying around his own bottle of uh, sort of sauce that we've seen him slugging down right. in the film. It's in fact gasoline from a Molotov cocktail that she's cleverly handed to the thing who would drink it not knowing that that's not what it's supposed to taste like and then Kurt Russell would know, ah, you're the thing. Or, oh, I've just made my buddy drink gasoline. Harsh. Uh, <laughs> um, which seems incredibly far-fetched to me. Right. And again, there's no indication that that would be the case. There's there's not like a, a lingering shot on a yeah. Molotov cocktail or a, anything that would make you think that. And apparently when Kurt Russell got asked about a few of these theories, he's like, I think you're really missing the point of that ending. <laughs> if you're trying to figure out which one was the thing, it's not. it doesn't matter. They could both be. They could neither be. The fact that they don't know is what matters. The fact that yeah. they can't trust each you other doubt and, each other you doubt yourself yeah you know that's he said it, it's that's the whole point he said i worked with john carpenter very closely on that ending and it's really important to me that it's ambiguous and it's really important to me that there isn't an answer yeah so stop trying to figure it out exactly so of course people have taken to reddit and being like if you take the first letter of everything he said he actually said i was the alien so. <laughs> <laughs> because people can't let it go people uh, cannot let it go but i think people always look for it's a very natural human thing, isn't it? We we look for meaning in yeah, well, places where sometimes we we don't expect to find meaning, and sometimes that's what I love about films. Like, and you, you mentioned Donnie Darko, which is one of the first films that kicked this off for us. Is I love that. I love when a film basically says, "What do you think?" Yeah, but discuss, <laughs> discuss it, but keep it to yourself. You yeah. know, just it's not going to be verified, and that's why I kind of didn't like Ridley Scott coming and saying, "Yeah, Decker was a replicant," because yeah. There's no definitive proof he was or he wasn't. I'm trying to even remember in the sequel whether it was that obvious he was or he wasn't. But 
Regardless. I think, I, think I'd, I actually really like to do Blade Runner at some point because I've watched it once. I have no memory of it. But again, similar kind of thing. I've read a whole bunch of articles about like, here's all the proof Deckard was a replicant and there's some deleted scenes that make it even more obvious. But that should tell you everything you need to know. Ridley Scott took those scenes out because it made it too obvious. And he wanted you to think about it. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is another thing at some point I'd like to talk about some of David Lynch's work. Right. I know you haven't seen... I, I haven't seen, seen huge swathes of David Lynch, actually. You know, almost anything I'd really like to talk about some stuff he's done. Because he's someone who knows exactly what he's put in front of you. Sure. He will never tell you what he's put in front of you. He wants you to figure it out. But there isn't always an answer to stuff he's done. Hmm. So it's kind of a different thing. He doesn't think it's ambiguous. He just doesn't think he's made it obvious, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Which is a kind of different approach to things. He wants you to come up with the answer. He doesn't want you to tell him you know. He won't tell you if you're right. He just he wants you to just think about what he's done. And that's that's the that's the important thing, is if you sit and watch that scene and just think about it and go, hmm, I don't really know what happened there. I guess that's the point. <laughs> exactly. I think it's also some people are so interested in coming up with the answer for things that they go to, to the extent of saying, yeah, he's got gasoline, he's going to test his mate. And it's like, but that's so unimportant. What's much more important is what is the film about? What yeah. are they trying to say? What uh, the characters about? Rather than the kind of A to B to C plot. Like, yeah. When a film only focuses on that and twists, what you get is M. Night Shyamalan, <sighs> who basically goes out and he says, what's the twist this time? <laughs> Thankfully, it's taken him a while, but I think he's actually learned his lesson. He's done some rehab work. Yeah. M. Night. And I, I realised the biggest twist of all would be no twist in one of his films. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The biggest twist was there was no twist at all. And his heart grew two sizes that day. Yeah. And also, don't work with Mel Gibson. Just leave Mel alone. <laughs> Mel's time is, is past and I think we should just leave him. <laughs> Let's leave him to his Jew-hazing ways. <laughs> his anti-Semitic racist rants. I think there's one, our, our one thing life. I would love to bring up before we, we kind of finish this off is is to talk about the director himself, John Carpenter. So John Carpenter was um, very commercially successful in the 80s, even if he wasn't always critically so, and then hit quite a few kind of stumbling blocks in the 90s. Now, basically, as a non-entity, low-budget works are kind of where he resides. Yeah. But it's a shame because he's done a lot of great things. And in this film, one of the great things he's done is he his visual style matches the, the music uh-huh. and the acting style to create that real sense of place and that real sense of theme. So the cameras are often not... We talked um, recently about Scorsese yeah. in Goodfellas and how dynamic his camera work was. When you move that camera, you really, you know, you've got a sense of what he was trying to accomplish, you know, mm-hmm. with a lot of kind of like smash zooms and stuff like that. With Carpenter... It's very static. You know, there's not a lot of crazy work with cameras, not a lot of whip pans or anything yeah. like that. I mean, the action is done very well, but for the most part, the camera is still, the character, there's maybe no music, and the characters are just kind of left to stew in their own juices, and you're lingering on them like, oh, fuck, is he, <laughs> is he an alien? Or is he the real yeah. thing? And again, it's just another great example of when a, a director knows exactly what he wants to say to you through a visual language, which yeah. is, I'm just going to keep the camera on here, not gonna be too crazy things, you know. There's not gonna be like big shots. There's not gonna be like yeah. big swooping camera work. It's just it's gonna be very static, very still. Yeah. Let your actors do some of the work. Yeah. Let the actors do the work. And also, um, interesting point is is the lighting as well. Yeah. So, 
I know people find lighting boring to talk about. Needless to say, it's done very well throughout the film. Yeah. And it's very good and it adds to the atmosphere. One thing specifically um, I, I read from the commentary track, so the, the, the lighting director guy, um, <laughs> yeah. I forget the name of what you would call someone who does your lighting, I guess, a lighting, uh, yeah. a lighting person. Sure. Specifically said, he said, well, he said, I didn't want to discuss this till the end of the film, but me and John actually came up with a lighting cue that would let you know that somebody was about to be revealed as the thing. Ah. And so he's basically like, near enough the last shot before somebody turns, we do a certain kind of lighting on their eyes yeah. that gives them this slightly unnatural look. Yeah. If you're looking very carefully, you'll start to spot it. Um, and then, you know, seconds later, they'll be revealed That's as terrific. the thing. And again, it's like, it's a little bit subtle, you know, in and it's, it's letting the film tell the story, not just boring exposition or, or anything else yeah. and it's it's using all the tools at their disposal and it's little bits like that that when you start hearing about them and you maybe go rewatch the film and you're like yeah. oh excellent it's yeah. got that rewatchability in there because they've added those kind of layers and it's the kind of thing that you and me to be honest with you you go to the multiplex on a saturday night or friday night or whatever and you don't realize goes into a lot of these films yeah. you just sometimes go to film and think that was garbage yeah you know or that was great but you don't really think about it. You don't think about all the hard work that goes into it. And it's, it's elements like that that really help. And again, you might not have picked up on it yeah. the first time. But then you may have just thought, yeah, something happened just before they turned. <laughs> I couldn't quite put my hands on yeah. it. And then you watch it again. And you see, it is terrific, isn't it? It's yeah. just fantastic, how the, the level of craft that goes into these films. Yeah, it's like um, the guy from Red Letter Media who does all those funny reviews kind of sure. says, like... You didn't notice it, but your brain did. Yes. And, and that's very true because you always know when something's about to happen. And it's because, again, you know, there's the yeah. lighting. There's probably a music cue involved. Exactly. The, the actors are probably gearing up for something. And you can kind of see that yes. know, through through their work. Um, so there's, I think we've, we've talked quite thoroughly about the film. I think there's one thing I want to ask you about very briefly. Go on. Um, which is, have you seen the 2011 sequel well it's not a sequel it's sorry, a prequel it's a prequel yeah sorry because of course you have to have a prequel because you have to have things explained to you like a yeah. child uh-huh. uh no i've not and i, I don't intend to ever because it's interesting because it got it got mixed reviews mm -hmm. but it's better than a lot of these kind of far too late sequel prequels tend to get and so my original thought for this was uh not just talking about the thing what i wanted to do was look at the thing and it's 30 year later, you know, yeah. follow-up film. And also look at Blade Runner and its 30 or so year later follow-up film. Well, I can tell you right now that even watching the thing, it's a slam dunk to Blade Runner because <laughs> the sequel's pretty damn good. Well, and that's it. And it kind of, maybe we'll just look at that separately. You know, maybe do Blade Runner then, Blade Runner now, Ford versus Gosling. But what I specifically am fascinated by is it's so rarely done well. Yes. Um, and again, it sounds to me like the thing... I think some people were surprised and thought it was actually pretty good, but then most of what I read said, well, it's all CG now, instant practical effects. It doesn't feel like the thing. Exactly. And it's a prequel that probably looks like a sequel because it can't help but look newer. Yeah. Um, I'm presuming it covers what happened at the previous station. It was a bit Norwegian station. And again, that's that's kind of shining the light on the thing I didn't want to know about. You know, it's like it's not even that was a mystery. thing to know about it. It's just it's not necessary. Yeah, it's like it's exactly the same. It's like the only thing you even then it's not from the same filmmaker. 
why do you need to know like is it an alien or where it came from it came from galaxy alpha whatever whatever well that's not really interesting yeah that doesn't add Cause, to it because you know what that's not a real place and of course they're all norwegian <laughs> so you know you then having to deal with either people speaking english which you know they wouldn't do or subtitling exactly or subtitling or, or whatever and then you know they're all going to die and, and one's going to get away and, and then da, 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 to start the next film. And you're like, well, I don't need to see that. I don't need to know that. It's just not interesting in any way, shape or form, really. Um, <laughs> but just to kind of wrap up on, on Carpenter, you know, his career unfortunately kind of went downhill and I was reading up about it. You know, some of the films that he's responsible for are Escape from New York, which I've never watched all the way through. But again, it's Kurt Russell. Yeah. But also Escape from L.A., which is so bad it was the focus of a how did this get made episode. <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China, which we watched a lot of. Yeah, I did. Growing up, which was um, commercially unsuccessful, but mm-hmm. launched Kim Cattrall on the world. Um, they also He also did a film called Vampires, which I actually watched in the cinema, believe it or not, and wasn't very good either. Uh, there was James Woods as a vampire You hunter. know what? I haven't actually seen Vampires. I've seen it... Even worse, straight-to-video sequel, Vampires Los Muertos. And who stars in it? John Bon Jovi. Of course. And that's why I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually one of the worst films I've ever seen. It's um, terrible. Poor, poor Bon Jovi. I think he's actually an alright actor. But he he just stays artist-in-residence at NBC. Yeah. And <laughs> Bless him. And then John Carpenter also did Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which was another um, commercial failure, which kind of precipitated his kind of downfall and I just was reading up on this and I felt really sad because obviously people like this are quite talented but yeah. films for many reasons may not work whether it's uh, advertising whether it's perception whether it's critical appraisal whether it's just released at the wrong time of the year yeah um, and I also thought about someone like John McTiernan John McTiernan and John Carpenter had a run of films in the 80s which are amongst the films you love the most John McTiernan directed Die Hard directed I think it's sequel no no that was Rainy Harlan he directed Die Hard though and he directed uh, Hunt for Red October amongst other things and enough said enough said (laughs) until his later films and then they all kind of just go downhill precipitously very quickly and then he's never to be seen from again and it's just such a shame because obviously these guys can do a movie yeah you know (laughs) these guys can direct the fuck out of a film but for whatever reason the studios don't trust them, don't give them the money, the projects are not there, so they move on to other projects and say, oh, I'll kind of do this, and then they're kind of never seen from again. John Carpenter's still kicking around, but uh, has not really made a film of much consequence for for some time. It's a shame. It's Which a is shame. a shame. Which is a real shame. Hi everyone, Chris here from Oh Brother, What Are We Watching? Apologies for the abrupt end to that podcast. Uh, what happened was, Steve was about to say, so, Chris, what am I watching next time? And I had forgotten to come up with a film. So we stopped and we batted it around for a bit and we decided we would get back together in a week or so and uh, just record this ending bit where he, where I would give him a movie. But long story short, we couldn't come up with something, so I've given Stevie double pick. So next time we will be discussing the film Looper which is available on Netflix, so if you want to go and watch it now, uh, and then next time Steve and I will sit down and discuss it, and you can find out my opinions on it, having watched it the first time, and Steve's opinions after a rewatch. 
Again, sorry that we didn't do this properly and didn't pretend that we were doing it for the first time together, but our schedules have been very, very hectic and don't really allow for that. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. I hope you'll join us on the next episode and we'll see you soon. Thanks very much.